thank you for accepting me here. Um, I am a New England Patriots fan, and while that may not be welcome here, it's especially not welcome today in Kansas City, so I'm glad to be out of the city for the weekend, uh, at the least. I may not be able to go home, we'll see, and not just because of the weather. Thank you for, uh, despite the weather, coming here this morning. I have a low-grade anxiety um, that uh, the reason your services weren't canceled, uh, or this service wasn't canceled today, is because there was a guest speaker in town. So. Hopefully you're not too angry with me, um, and I shall do my best to make your uh, trip in worth it this morning. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Job chapter 14, Job chapter 14. Uh, Victor Hugo, who um, was a French novelist, um, perhaps best known for his book Les Miserables, also wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, once said, tomorrow... If all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me to retain one work only, I should save Job. I find that rather interesting, um, but anyone really who spent a considerable amount of time in the book of Job might see why. Most of us are um, somewhat familiar just with the beginning part of the story, or at least uh, the, uh, the grounds for the rest of the book, the narrative of the affliction of Job. But when you look at the book as a whole, you begin to see that it is really an epic masterpiece unto itself. It is full of Holy Spirit-inspired poetry, of unparalleled beauty. It has within its pages a theology of unrivaled depth. It also has a pastoral counsel of uncommon grace. The book of Job is simultaneously a poetic treatise on the staggering sovereignty of God and at the same time an arm around the hunched shoulders of any person who is struck down in grief and pain. And Job is a man who has been struck as low as almost anyone could be struck save Christ himself. And here he's not as concerned, I don't think, that Victor Hugo would save him as he is that God will. So let's begin reading Job chapter 14 in verse 1. Anyone born of woman is short of days and full of trouble. He blossoms like a flower and then withers. He flees like a shadow and does not last. Do you really take notice of one like this? Will you bring me into judgment against you? Who can produce something pure from what is impure? No one. Since a person's days are determined and the number of his months depends on you, and since you have set limits he cannot pass, look away from him and let him rest so that he can enjoy his day like a hired worker. There is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again and its shoots will not die. If its roots grow old in the ground and its stump starts to die in the soil, the scent of water makes it thrive and produce twigs like a sapling, but a person dies and fades away. He breathes his last. Where is he? As water disappears from a lake and a river becomes parched and dry, so people lie down never to rise again. They will not wake up until the heavens are no more. They will not stir from their sleep. If only you would hide me in Sheol and conceal me until your anger passes. If only you would appoint a time for me and then remember me. When a person dies, will he come back to life? If so, I would wait all the days of my struggle until my relief comes. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would count my steps, but would not take note of my sin. 
My rebellion would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. But as a mountain collapses and crumbles and a rock is dislodged from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil from the land, so you destroy a man's hope. You completely overpower him and he passes on. You change his appearance and send him away. If his sons receive honor, he does not know it. If they become insignificant, he's unaware of it. He only feels the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless this time that we have together. We know that your word does not return void. And so we ask this morning, as there are undoubtedly precious souls in this room struggling with some sort of pain, grief, suffering, that you would press this word of hope deep into their hearts, perhaps the only thing they have left is this sliver of hope. And I pray that even as they grasp to the hem of your garment, they would find healing and knowing there is a great Savior who loves them. And it's in his name we pray, the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Um, It's somewhat of a universal experience. I know that I'm speaking to at least half of the uh, people in this room, if not more. When I ask the question, have you ever been in a tunnel so dark, you're beginning to wonder if there really is a light at the end? As each day progresses, a little bit more of your optimism dwindles. When you've begun in a trial and someone says, remember, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, you, uh, you believe it, you have an, optim- uh, an optimism about it, but as each day progresses and things don't seem to get better, in fact, they just seem to get worse, and you go to bed at night thinking, well, m- maybe tomorrow will be different, and tomorrow is not different, and each day is exactly the same. You've seen the uh, temptation to doubt increase in your heart. I'm willing to wager that many of you have been there. Maybe you're there right now. The suffering is so great and apparently unending and there are no answers to your questions and you begin to try to adjust to what you think is the new reality. This is how life will always be. I have no hope that it'll be any different than this. Have you ever been in a place in your life when really all you have left is the idea of hope? And even that seems to be fading. Well, that's exactly what is taking place here for Job. Waiting in a kind of hope that in his heart might be fading. And he is desperately grabbing for it. Is where Job finds himself. If you're not familiar with the story of Job try to catch you up just a little bit. In the beginning of the book, what we see is that the devil is roaming around the earth seeking for those he may devour. And um, he eventually ends up in the throne room of God himself. And what's very interesting about the exchange is that the devil afflicting Job appears to be God's idea. Have you considered my servant Job? And the affliction that the enemy brings on this godly man, Job, is quite profound. Some of the harshest things that we could ever imagine. Job is rendered financially bankrupt. He's gone from rich to poverty. He has a flourishing family that is wiped out all in one day. 
loses all of his children to death. He loses his health eventually as well as boils begin to grow on his skin. So he is physically hurt, interiorly he is hurt. In fact, the only person that the devil leaves in his life is his wife. And you might think, well, maybe the devil has some mercy after all. But no, his wife is one of the worst people in the scriptures that you could ever encounter. The devil sees Job's wife and thinks, I'll let this one be. She tells Job at one point, why don't you curse God and die? That's the kind of support system he has left. And so Job is now grieving the loss of all his children. He's grieving the loss of everything that he's ever had. He's sitting in a pile of ashes at this point, scraping the boils off his skin with broken pieces of pottery. And then his friends show up, and you would think they might be a comfort, but the only comforting thing they do is sit with him saying nothing for a few days. And then they begin to open their mouths. And if you've ever been in a pronounced period of suffering, you find sometimes that even your friends and family are not helpful because of their advice. It sometimes stings more than it helps, right? And so his friends are suggesting things like, you did something to bring this on yourself, or, or only if you had a little bit more faith, or if your sin wasn't so great. They have these little versions of the prosperity gospel they're trying to bring into the situation. And it's only compounding the pain for Job. And so now we get to Job chapter 14, and he's responding to one of his friends by the name of Zophar. And Zophar has essentially suggested to Job that his troubles are because of his lack of faith. And so this is where we find Job. In verse 1, anyone born of woman is short of days and full of trouble. Basically, what he's saying is this. Life is short and it stinks. And you might say, well, it could be long and stink, right? Maybe there's some encouragement there that at least it's short. But the emphasis is simply on this. What is Joe basically saying? He's saying life is terrible and then you die. If you ever encounter anybody who thinks that the Bible doesn't reflect realness, that the Bible is just religious sentimentality, bring them to Job. I mean, there's lots of places you could take them. You could take them to Lamentations. You could take them to some of the Psalms. You could take them to Ecclesiastes. But bring them to Job where we find the real stuff of life. Have them look in the pages, Job in the eyes, the blood-stained, blood-shot, tear-streaked eyes. In verses 5 and 6, Job has already begun further describing his lot to the sovereign direction of God. And in this moment, at least, he's not exactly happy about it. The idea of God's sovereignty over his situation seems more a problem than a promise. Since a person's days are determined and the number of his months depends on you, and since you have set limits he cannot pass, look away from him and let him rest so that he can enjoy his day like a hard worker. What is he saying here? Basically, lay off. I can't take any more of this. It's not enough you determine how long we live, God. You also allow hardship to come to us. Can't you just turn your head for a moment and let us have a little bit of freedom? I just want to breathe a little bit. You ever been there with God wrestling with him that way? Could you just give me a break for once? 
The feelings are real. The pain is real. And somehow he knows that although his immediate affliction is at the hands of the devil, he knows the devil is on God's leash. But as a mountain collapses, verse 18, and crumbles and a rock is dislodged from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil from the land, so you destroy a man's hope. You completely overpower him and he passes on. You change his appearance and you send him away. If his sons receive honor, he doesn't know it. If they become insignificant, he's unaware of it. He feels only the pain of his own body. And mourns only for himself. Job has been stripped down to his essence. All of his comforts are gone. All his physical pleasures are gone. All his material goods are gone. All his earthly joys are gone. And what is he left with? He says, all I'm left with is pain. Pain. But also, also hope. And so the first lesson we learn from this prayer and this lament and this theological affirmation is this hope defies what is seen hope defies what is seen this is what job sees with his physical eyes sorrow loss sickness a hurtful wife ignorant friends and he begins to note the apparent futility of everything he looks at the trees there's hope for this tree here, verse 7. If you cut it down, it'll sprout again. Its shoots won't die. If its roots grow old in the ground and its stump starts to die in the soil, just the scent of water makes it thrive and produce twigs like a sapling. But if a person dies, he fades away. He breathes his last, and where does he go? As water disappears from a lake and a river becomes parched and dry, so people lie down never to rise again. What's he saying? He's saying, look, you can see the fruit on a tree. Trees bounce back. All we see of a person, however, is that he gets old, he dies, and he turns into dust. That's what we can see with our eyes. But now the Lord has asked us to walk not by sight, but by faith. Think of um, after the resurrection of Jesus, right? And he's in that room with his followers and Thomas is in there, and um, Thomas hears this report of the risen Jesus, and despite Jesus having forecasted this will take place, I will die, and then I will rise again, Thomas is doubting, and Thomas really gets a bad rap. I mean, we call him Doubting Thomas now. That's really, that's kind of sketchy on our part, isn't it? I mean, is Thomas really any worse than any of us? And Thomas says, I won't believe unless I can actually touch those wounds. And we can assume from um, the implications of the text that when they finally meet, Jesus actually allows him to do that. We make that assumption that Jesus allows him to touch. But then Jesus says something really you know, interesting. He says, Thomas, do you believe because you've seen? He said, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Isn't that interesting? Where the world would say seeing is believing, Jesus would say, no, 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 believing is seeing. Maybe one reason God has allowed this attack on Job to take place is so that Job would learn not to trust in what he sees or feels, but instead to snuggle up close to God himself. When I was pastoring, I met with numerous people going through some very terrible things. I helped numerous saints pass into the next world. 
and numerous others who were just struggling with all sorts of pain, trauma from their past or the ongoing strain of relationships or just the circumstances of their life. And many of them would ask the exact same question. They would come to me essentially to ask this, why is this happening to me? Why would God allow this in my life? And I never saw those instances as permission for me to guess. Because even as a pastor, I did not know the mind of God and his ways of sovereignty. I could not say, the reason God has allowed this specifically for you is because of X, Y, and Z. See, that's what the friends of Job were doing that was so painful and unhelpful. And so many times what I would do is just respond to their question with a question of my own. Somebody would say, why is this happening to me? Why would God allow this pain and suffering in my life? And I would say, you know what, I, I wouldn't presume to answer that question. I know the Bible speaks to suffering lots of times and, and gives lots of general reasons why suffering is in the world. But for you specifically, I don't have the answer to that question. But let me ask you this. If you weren't going through this situation, or if you weren't in the midst of this circumstance right now, if you didn't feel this pain right now, would you be as close to God as you are right now? And I never had a single person say, yes, I would. It is a very difficult truth to accept, but the Lord is always more interested in deepening our sense of need for him than he is on giving us reasons not to need him at all. And people who feel comfortable apart from God are in the most dangerous place they could ever be. And this is where Job is. Everything he sees, touches, smells, hears, feels is miserable. His life looks hopeless. And yet despite his visible tragedy, he hopes in the invisible God. He thinks maybe there's more than what I see. At the end of um, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, at the end of The Return of the King, there's in those appendices there, which I'm sure you have read the appendices to The Return of the King, um, you see um, Aragorn, high king of Gondor, on his deathbed. And he's gathered his elvish wife to his side, as one does. You gather your elvish wife to your side. And he says his last words, the last words of King Aragorn. He says, in sorrow we must go, but not in despair. Behold, we are not bound forever to the circles of the world. And beyond them is more than memory. Aragorn essentially saying, it doesn't just fade away. There's another world. Well, if you don't like that reference, how about this one? Another deathbed statement. Last December, we lost former President George H.W. Bush. This is from the New York Times reporting of his final moments. Bush had been fading in the last few days. He had not gotten out of bed. He had stopped eating, and he was mostly sleeping. For a man who had defied death multiple times over the years, it seemed that his moment was finally arriving. And his longtime friend and former Secretary of State, James A. Baker, arrived at his Houston home on Friday morning to check on him. Mr. Bush suddenly grew alert, his eyes wide open. Where are we going, Bake? he said. We're going to heaven, Mr. Baker answered. That's where I want to go, Mr. Bush said. 
You see, Christians don't hope the way the world hopes, right? When the world hopes, they're engaging in wishful thinking, like, I hope this happens. It's probably not going to happen, but, but I hope that this happens, or I hope that happens. They think that when a man dies, he just fades away, that's it. He breathes his last, that's the end. That's all that they can see. But the Christian's hope is not like that. The Christian's hope defies what we can see, and it is ripe with the promise of what cannot be seen. Consider these passages from the good book, First Thessalonians 4.13. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. 2 Corinthians 1.7, and our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you also will share in the comfort. Colossians 1.5, there is hope reserved for you in heaven. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you is the hope of glory. 1 Timothy 1.1, Christ Jesus is our hope. Hebrews 6.19, we have this hope as a Anchor, a sure and steady anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what isn't seen. You see, the world's hope is hollow. The world's hope is grasping at straws, but the believer's hope is firm because the believer's hope is Jesus. And just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not real. Just because you don't see him now doesn't mean you won't see him then. Hope defies what is seen. But secondly, hope demands what is unseen. Hope demands what is unseen. And by demand, I don't mean it demands things of God. I only mean that hope is a calling for what lies beyond. Hope demands things of us, really. Namely, that we will not assume that what we see is all there is to the story. So Job prays, verse 13, If only you would hide me in Sheol and conceal me until your anger passes. If only you would appoint a time for me and then remember me. When a person dies, will he come back to life? If so, I would wait all the days of my struggle until my relief comes. In a way, the chapter kind of turns on this hinge here in verse 14. Job is here saying, in essence, my hope is that what I'm going through will somehow in the end be worth it. He's not saying, oh, I hope this is going to be worth it. He's saying, my hope is that I know this will be worth it. He knows that in the end it will be worth it. So even if he can't see through the tears of his pain, he knows that he can endure given the end that's promised to him. When a person dies, will he come back to life? When a person dies, will he come back to life? This is the first hint at where Job's ultimate hope really is. I would wait all the days of my struggle until my relief comes, he says. So let me ask you this, just as a point of application. In particular, if you're going through something right now that is incredibly painful, the sort of thing that you have prayed multiple times to God to take away from you, maybe it's a temptation that you know you're weak within, maybe it's a grief over something that has happened to you, maybe it's a period of depression and there's no 
pinpointing what the cause is. It's just this dark shadow that won't seem to leave you. Let me ask you this. If you're going through a situation or a circumstance or a disposition like that, what in your mind would make it worth it? Like just in your imagination, if you say, okay, if this were the case, what I'm going through would be worth it. And maybe it's simply deliverance from your circumstances. It'd be worth it if I could know that this will be over at some point before I die. Or maybe in your mind, nothing, nothing is worth that. What you're going through can't be worth anything. But if you believe in the sovereignty of God, and that therefore he has somehow, for whatever reason you don't see, He's either purposed this in your life or he's allowed it to come into your life. If you believe that there is a God, you know he is all-powerful and could have prevented this from happening to you. Can you at least believe that he means it ultimately for your good? Because whatever you brought into your mind when I asked the question, what would make this worth it, reveals where your hope is ultimately found. Is your hope found in what you see? And if that's the case, you probably should feel hopeless all the time. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In his little book, The Great Divorce, a novel that sort of imagines a mythological reading of the afterlife, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Some mortals say of our temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards, and even that agony will be turned into a glory. And this is what Job is doing at this moment. His hope is demanding what is unseen. He is committing to eagerly waiting to enduring. That's what he's saying in verse 14. If I could know that I'm going to come back to life, that this isn't all there is, I would endure this struggle until that day comes. If that's what it takes, Lord, I'll do it. So what about you? If you, if you knew, like if you, if you could know that this life isn't all there is, how would it affect how you live today? Or this week, how would it affect your hope in the midst of suffering? Hope is how we believe there's more to the story. This isn't the end. It's how we pull out of our pain a trust that God is doing something with it. Hope defies what is seen. Hope demands what is unseen. And thirdly and finally, hope delivers on its promise. Hope delivers on its promise in a way Despite all of his pain, Job knows that dying isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. That as bad as his pain is, that there is a pain that is worse still. And this is something you and I have to reckon with as well. Most of us, what we're afraid of is the suffering and the death, not knowing that the suffering after death is much worse. So when Job looks forward to the end, this is his first hope. You'd call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would count my steps 
but would not take note of my sin. My rebellion would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. How is that even possible? That the holy God of the universe who sees everything would say, your sin, I don't make any note of that. Your rebellion, I seal that up in a bag. I throw it into a sea of forgetfulness. I cover over your transgressions. How is that even possible? Well, it's accomplished in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus has gone to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that we could be forgiven, have our sins not taken note of, and our iniquity covered. So Job is in a way a prefigure of Jesus. Jesus, who was God incarnate, come in the flesh to suffer. Unlike Job, the Son of God knew what he was getting himself into. He was willing to be afflicted. He went to the cross and endured for us. And then the darkest days. Is there a light at the end of this tunnel? And then comes the resurrection. Where Christ bodily and gloriously rises from the grave. And ascends to heaven to advocate for us and to put our faith in him is to cling to the one who has lashed himself to us come hell or high water and it is the deepest most serious and most seriously eternal love that can ever be known the lord of the universe so unites us to himself that his death becomes our death his resurrection becomes our resurrection and no matter where we are whether we're in health or in pain happiness or grief riches or poverty certainty or confusion we are hidden with Christ in God himself is that not security so to turn your back on him and to put your faith in only what you see now is to decide not to see him later it's instead to choose the death that comes after death the wages of our sin which is eternal condemnation in hell but the one that who, who is lashed to Jesus has an eternal joy to look forward to. So if you're a Christian, the most important thing about your life, your eternal destiny is already settled. And this life, no matter how long and painful it is, is just a blip on the radar of eternity. Paul says, I don't even compare it to the weight of glory. This is a light momentary affliction. Or how about Romans chapter 5, verse 5, where Paul says, This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This hope will not disappoint us, or as some other translations put it, this hope does not put us to shame. Any other hope will, but not this one. I want you to put yourself in the shoes or the, the sandals, I suppose, of a Jewish man or woman in the last days of the year 1 BC. If that's you, you don't know that it's 1 BC, right? Some of you can explain that joke later on the way home. You only know that it's been 400 years since the prophet Malachi. And you're tired. And all your religious leaders keep talking about this, hoping the Messiah stuff. But it's been a long time since God spoke. And you're oppressed. And you're divided. And you're suffering. 
And the hope for God to do anything, even if he's real, is starting to feel like an urban legend. Begin to think things like, if he's up there, he doesn't care about us. Picture a couple of shepherds, maybe. Right? They're out watching the sheep under the stars like they have for years, maybe decades. Maybe these are older shepherds. They've been doing the same job every single day. Two guys, buddies, watching the sheep. And they're leaning against a boulder and they're looking out at their flock. One shepherd says to the other, hey, Ernie. We'll, we'll call one of them Ernie. Ernie says, yeah? Do you ever sit and think to yourself if any of that Messiah stuff is true? What do you mean? Ernie says. Yeah, I mean, my grandpa, right? He, he used to recite to me all the scriptures. I know the shepherds sound vaguely Italian. Please bear with me. My grandpa, he used to recite to me all the scriptures that he knew. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Job. And I've never forgotten them. And when I was younger, I used to really believe them. But now sometimes I wonder. I mean, what if it's all just fairy tales? What are you talking about fairy tales, his friend says. Of course they're not fairy tales. God, the Lord himself, inspired those prophecies. I know, I know, I know, I know. But it's been like 400 years. It's been 400 years since the last prophet. The Romans own everything. Our preachers are mean. Our activists get crucified. If God was ever speaking, he sure doesn't seem to be speaking today. He's been silent a long time, since long before you and I were born. And day after day, night after night, we come out here and we stare at these sheep and we stare at the stars and we assume that there's a heaven up there and that God's up there doing something. But if there is, he has a pretty funny way of showing it, don't you think? You ever think to yourself, what if this is it? And Ernie says... Man, that's just life. That's just life. Life is waiting. But I know God's up there somewhere. I know he's all around here somewhere. And just because we can't see him, and just because it looks like he's done talking, doesn't make it so. You know, one day, he's going to split that sky in two. And he's going to come right down here and set everything back the way he wants it. And Ernie nudges his friend, like, snap out of it. And his friend looks up at the sky, and he says, man, I hope so. And then months go by. They've had hundreds of mundane conversations since this one. And one night, just like any other night, they're out looking out at their sheep and up at the stars just like they've been doing for years. And it's Christmas night, but they don't know it. Christmas doesn't exist yet. To them, it's just one more night, just like all the others. Same old, same old. Nothing ever changes. And Ernie and his I hope so buddy are leaning against that same rock one more time in silence. And they're looking up at the stars 
And it looks like one star is getting a little brighter. Ah, he's just seeing things. No, it actually looks like it's getting a little closer. What is, is that a meteorite? What's that up there? And then over the field, suddenly, it begins to, like, like dawn is coming early. And it gets so bright, it's almost like daytime. And then it seems like the whole field is on fire. And everybody's freaking out. And they're terrified. They're, they can't figure out what, they have no frame of reference for what's taking place. And as they're trembling and terrified, this blazing figure comes walking out of the light. And says to them, I proclaim to you good news, a great joy that has come for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, can you imagine that? What you can imagine is what came before it. Is this it? I mean, I heard the stories, but... What was it that Job could look forward to? Maybe he had a hope that he could get his fortune and health back. We know at the end of the story, he has those things restored. Of course, he can't get his children back, but in any event, he doesn't know that's going to happen. For all he knows, this is it. This is what life is like now. This is what life is always going to be. It couldn't get worse than this, and then it does, and it certainly can't seem to get better. And all along, we never see Job say, I hope I get my stuff back. No, where is his hope? If you have your Bible open, turn just a few chapters over to Job chapter 19. Job 19, and begin looking at verse 25. But I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end, he will stand on the dust even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. This is Job's hope. First, that the Lord would not take note of my sin, and then because of that, that the Lord would deliver on the promise of hope. Lord, I don't know what you're doing, he's saying. And I don't know the ins and outs of your providentially orchestrating the smoking crater that is my life. But I do know this. When it's all said and done, I will look you in the face and I will see in your eyes. And whether I understand it or not, I will see you and you will see me and all will be well. Is that your hope this morning? Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Turn back to Job chapter 13. Job 13, verse 15. Even if he kills me, Job says, I will hope in him. Look, I don't know where you're at spiritually, physically, psychologically this morning. Maybe you're desperate right now for this kind of thing. And one thing that, especially those of us who live in the West, unaccustomed to just the daily suffering of our environment, need to get through our thick skulls is 
The cross always comes before the resurrection. And as far as the Lord's timing is concerned, it does very much seem like the cliche is not a cliche. It is always darkest before the dawn. So what are we to do? What do we take home as our action point? This comes from the Anglican preacher George Whitfield, the early days of America, in one of his sermons. He says, do not think of following Christ into glory unless you go through the press here. Look forward, my brethren, into eternity and behold Christ coming and his reward with him to give a kind reward for all the temptations and difficulties of this present life. My takeaway is this. Whatever I'm going through, no matter how long it is, and it may be for the rest of my life, I know because of the gospel it will be worth it. We can endure with hope because Christ has come to be born. He's come to live. He's come to die. He's come to rise again. He is here in Holy Spirit now, and he will come again. Doesn't this make it all worth it? If I could believe that, I would endure this struggle all the days of my life. It'll be worth it. Hope defies what is seen. Hope demands what is unseen. And hope will deliver on its promise. Let's pray. Father, many of us need this message pressed into not just our heads, but into our hearts. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be here announcing to us your grace through the gift of your Son. We believe, we ask that you would help our unbelief. We know you don't always lead us into safe circumstances. But we always know, because of the redemption provided through your son, that we are secure for all eternity. And for that, we thank you and praise you in the name of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen.